Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you very much for being here. We are phenomenally proud of our relationship with Cambridge University, who promised 12 years ago a promise they've made good on to send us their best and brightest to talk about the most important research that the greatest university in the world were doing. I am delighted that today we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Ferdia Gallagher, who is um, a Cancer Research UK clinician scientist fellow. He is a reader in molecular imaging at the University of Cambridge and an honorary consultant radiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital. He's going to talk for 45 minutes and then take questions from you. I know that you're going to have a fascinating and wonderful hour. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. It's my first time at the Hay Festival. So as Peter says, I, I'm a CRUK clinician scientist. I'm a, a radiologist, an imaging doctor, and CRUK fund me to look at new ways to assess cancer. And I saw this on the way to Hereford yesterday, and I thought just with a little bit of photoshopping, I hope Peter doesn't mind, that actually the title would be quite appropriate for this. So, I'm going to talk about imaging in general. And imaging has made a huge impact on the way we practice medicine over the last 30 to 40 years. Now, just to put that into context, 80% of all diagnostic decisions in the NHS are based to some extent around imaging. And to show you examples of those, you'll be familiar, I'm sure, with many of these, a chest X-ray for looking for infection, perhaps looking for cancer. This is a CT of the whole body. So this patient has been imaged. And then we have removed the tissues so that we can look just at the bones. And then we can display it in three-dimensional space. So this is a fetus, an ultrasound. Again, many of you may have had one of these. And then finally, a scan to look specifically at cancer. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about these sort of tests later on. But the areas that you see which are very black, some of them represent tumors. But I'm going to talk about very few of these today. What I really want to talk about is MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. And this is our scanner in Adenbrooks that we do most of our research on. And I'm going to take you on a journey. This is a, a patient journey where we start going into the scanner and we're going to start talking about MRI. So first of all, I'm going to do a little bit on understanding the principles of it. They're quite complicated. I hope in some way we can make those straightforward and simple to understand. Um, I'm also going to talk about clinical applications and then perhaps some of the future of MRI and what we can do with it. But before I talk about the future, this is the past. This is the very first MR image that was ever produced. And I'll take shouts from the audience. Does anyone know what this is? Shout out. No, it's not fingerprints. No. This is, in fact, two tubes of water. Um, which in its time was revolutionary. And I'll talk about the man who produced this image later. And it's allowed us to look at, this is a histopathological specimen, but this time non-invasively. We find that people are not very forthwith in, in giving, donating their brains, particularly when they're alive. So having a non-invasive test to try and study the brain allows us ways to probe tissue. This particular patient, unfortunately, has a cancer. 
So it's a tumor that you can see here. There's lots of vessels here. The center of it is black because it's dying. The tumor is growing so rapidly that it's outstripping the blood supply. So MR allows us to look at anatomy in exquisite detail. So you can look, for example, at the eyes. Um, at the front, you can start to see the nerves. You can see layers of the brain. You can even see some of these nerves coming in and out of the brain stem. This is called the cerebellum. And if I ask you to look very specifically at this area, which is the inner ear, on the right-hand side, we can extract that information and look at that in absolutely fabulous detail. I hope you agree. These are semicircular canals. There are three of them. They're all at 90 degrees to each other. They're involved in balance. This looks like a snail. In fact, it's what we use for hearing. And so this, I hope, exemplifies some of the power of MR, that we can probe tissue and structure within the brain. I guess before we consider what we can do with MRI, I think it's very important that we think about what we can probe in the body. So we're largely made up of this stuff, of water. We're about 60% water, so in an average 70-kilogram man, that's 45 kilograms. We also have a large amount of this stuff, <laughs> some more than others, I confess. Uh, average man is about 16% fat, or 12 kilograms. We also contain some of this, some protein, 18% or so. And the rest is a collection of ions and other things that amount to about 4.5 kilograms. But it's the first two I particularly want to talk about. So we can use MR to produce images of water and images of fat. And those two have proved to be very powerful in medical imaging. So this is a whole body MR. Um, the images have been acquired in stages and then joined together. We can see the distribution of that water, for example, in the brain, in the muscle. We can also see water in this, in the liver, in the spleen. These are the kidneys, and further down in many of the muscles um, throughout the body. What about fat distribution? It's quite different, isn't it? So a very little fat in the brain, for example. And then we have quite a lot of fat, which is under the skin, call that subcutaneous fat. There's a little bit of fat in these solid organs, but an awful lot of fat in and around those organs in the abdomen. So the distribution of fat varies quite a lot between men and women. Women tend to have more of the subcutaneous fat. Men tend to have more of the intra-abdominal fat, um, which in part explains the difference in appearance between men and women. So how do you produce these images? Well, I'm going to do a little bit of physics. So I, I hope you don't mind, because I think it's important to understand some of the underlying properties of MR before we can explain what we can do in new ways. So MRI is based around the principles of nuclear magnetic resonance, NMR. So where does the nuclear come from? Well, it's the nucleus of an atom. Um, this particular atom is the hydrogen atom. The nucleus is a single proton. Around it, you have orbiting a single electron. And here, it's spinning. And that's, that's one of the key properties of NMR. That proton is positively charged, and it's spinning. And it's this discovery by Isidore Rabi uh, in New York, which led to him winning a Nobel Prize in 1944. Um, and subsequently, a year later, these two gentlemen, Edward Purcell and Felix Bloch, 
went on to show that the same property um, was impressed in water and paraffin, things which are much more biologically relevant. So they opened up the possibility of using this in biological systems. And then they went on to win the Nobel Prize in 1952. Now, I have a bit of a challenge here. Three Nobel laureates work in the space of about 10 or 15 minutes. So I'm going to do my best. So this is going to be a key thing that I'm going to try and explain in this talk. That's that spinning proton that you've seen here before. Um, it's a charged particle, and it's moving. So it's generating a current. And if you remember back to your A-level physics, we know that there's a relationship between current and a magnetic field, as shown here. So in essence, we can imagine this spinning proton as a little bar magnet. And I'm sure many of you have one of these at home. So I, from here on in, I'm going to represent um, this spinning proton and this bar magnet as this. It's like um, a snooker ball that's been speared. And so think of that as a magnet wherever you see it. So the spinning on its own, it does very little. But when it enters a magnetic field, it has another very fascinating property. It starts to, to rotate around um, the magnetic field's um, uh, length. And it produces an image like this. And that's quite hard to grasp, but perhaps an easier way of thinking about it is a gyroscope. So I think most of you will have seen a gyroscope. And the phenomenon of the gyroscope is very much like what we see on the left-hand side of the proton, which we call precession. We're replacing the charged particle with mass, um, and we're replacing the magnetic field with a gravitational field. But in essence, they are the same thing, in, just in, in, in different ways of looking at it. OK, so let's think again about magnetic fields. So I think we all know that the Earth has an intrinsic magnetic field. Um, and it's 0 0.0006 Tesla. So that's 60 microtesla. And Tesla was described by this man, Nikola Tesla, who is a Serbian-American inventor. And we're going to use the Earth's magnetic field as a reference for all the other magnetic fields that I'm going to talk about. So here's something else you might be familiar with, another magnet, fridge magnets. So these are 3 millitesla by comparison, 50 times more than the Earth's magnetic field. This is a scrapyard magnet, 0.6 tesla, 10,000 times the Earth's field. And finally, our magnet that we have, which is three tesla, typically the sort of magnets that you may be imaged on in a hospital would be 1.5 or three tesla. And that's 50,000 times the Earth's magnetic field. So how do we generate that magnetic field? Well, this is a magnet cut open. And within it, we can see wires. Um, and the wires um, have current going through them, and the current generate a magnetic field. You can see the length of the magnetic field runs up and down the bore of the magnet, and that's where the patient lies within it. So in order to do that, we need a huge amount of current. It's 600 amps of current. So in comparison, 30 amps goes through many sockets, 30 amps for a cooker. So we're talking about 20 cookers or so. And the amount of cabling required for that is about 60 kilometers worth of cabling. So lots of cable, lots of current. We need very special materials for it. And these materials include niobium and titanium. 
ordinary copper would get very hot, so it has to be cooled. And so even on a cold day like today in hay, it's nothing near this temperature. This is four degrees off absolute zero, minus 269 degrees centigrade. So that's fairly cold. And we achieve that temperature with several thousand liters of liquid helium. Just to show you what that magnetic field is like, and this is one of my colleagues demonstrating with a key ring, the, the attraction of that towards the magnet. And that's a very small bit of metal. And this is one of the reasons that we have to check that our patients have no metal within them, a pacemaker, for example, um, that they have no recent surgery that may have involved certain metals. And we also have to make sure that they haven't got metal outside of them. So for example, coins, keys, credit cards, etc. But sometimes mistakes happen. And this is an example of one of those. Unfortunately, it wasn't from our hospital. And the, the force is so strong that it really cannot be stopped from once it starts moving towards the magnetic field. It's dragged very rapidly. And if you were to go into that magnet and try and pull it off, it would be so firmly adherent to the magnet, it would be impossible to do that. So the magnet has to be wrapped down, the current has to be taken away, um, the wheelchair is removed, and then the whole process has to be reversed. And that involves quite a substantial amount of money, as you can see, many tens of thousands of pounds. And clearly, it puts people at risk as well. So I'm going to go back to my, my spinning proton here, the processing proton. In that field that we've talked about, the three Tesla, that frequency is 128 megahertz. So it's rotating 128 million times in a second. So that's pretty fast. Now, that frequency is actually in the radio wave frequency. So, and this is something I want to emphasize. This is very different from x-rays, which are used, for example, to acquire the images that I showed at the start, to acquire CT imaging. It's a, it's a radio wave, which involves no risk to the patient. And what about the number of these protons within the patient? Well. There's an awful lot, is the answer. In one drop of water, we have 1.67 by 10 to the power of 21 protons. That's a sextillion of protons, apparently. It's quite difficult to draw all of those, so instead, I drew just nine. <laughs> but it does give you an idea that there's an awful lot. And of course, we're all full of an awful lot of drops of water. And here's another very important property of these protons when they're put in a magnetic field. Approximately half of them will align in one direction, and approximately a half will align in the opposite direction. And you can see that here, uh, where these are pointing up, and this one's pointing down. So those that point up generate um, a magnetic field in this direction. Those that are pointing down, a small magnet in that direction. And you can see that those magnets are different sizes. And that's because there's a very small imbalance between the ones that point up and point down. And that's important because the net effect is a little small magnet. And that's what we can measure. It's the difference between those. But herein lies a problem, because that small magnet is aligning in the same direction as the big magnetic field, the magnetic field that the patient is lying in. So how do you discriminate a tiny increase on top of what is otherwise a very big magnetic field. And this, again, is one of the key things that made MRI possible. It's the fact that we can tip this magnetic field, we can tip it 90 degrees, 
and therefore it's in a position in which we can start to acquire signal from it. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, back to the gyroscope. We can push the gyroscope, and slowly it starts to move until finally it ends up 90 degrees from where it originally started. So that's the principle that we're going to think about now in the magnet, in the protons in the patient. And it brings in the third bit of NMR. So we've talked about the nuclear bit, proton. We've talked about the magnetic bit. Now the resonance. Um, and that's simply um, thought about like a tuning fork. I'm sure many of you have tuning forks at home. And it's very difficult to hear a tuning fork unless it's right up next to your ear, I think it's fair to say. However, if you take that tuning fork and put it onto a guitar case or put it onto a violin, you'd start to hear the resonance. And that's because the volume of air within a guitar or violin is much larger, and therefore it produces a larger amount of, of resonance. Essentially, it amplifies the signal from the tuning fork. So how do we do that um, in our case, in the magnet? Well, this is an example of what we can do with it. Those of you who have had an MRI will probably have experienced this before. You have to have a coil placed over you, generally. Um, this is a head coil, but you might have had one put on the chest, on the abdomen, on a knee, for example. And within that, there are lots of coils that I'm going to show you what they do. So the red lines represent the coils within it. And we apply a small current. And you can see here that the current is alternating. It's going up and down. And I talked before about a current and magnetism and their interrelationship. So if we have an alternating current, we have an alternating magnetic field. So that's that throbbing that you see. And if we're able to match the frequency of, um, of the throbbing that you see, the 128 megahertz, with that which is in protons, then this is what happens. They do exactly what I demonstrated with the gyroscope. It starts to tip over. And I've shown the gyroscope in the bottom right-hand corner there. So once again, just so that you're all clear, that we start in the direction of the main magnetic field, then eventually it tips until it's 90 degrees from it. I have a light bulb with... OK, so can we demonstrate that in practice? Well, here's my colleague demonstrating it. I have a light bulb with wire attached to both ends. So what Josh has done there is he's taken a fluorescent tube and connected the two ends with a, with a wire. So there's no battery involved here. And there's nothing that will generate electricity from, from within the system. And then we're going to put it into the magnet. And this is what you see. So that noise is due to the gradient, something I'll talk about in a second. And they're due to flexing of, that, of the copper that we talked about, sorry, of the wire within the, um, within the magnet that we talked about. And you can see it's lighting up. So the alternating magnetic field is inducing a current, and the current is lighting up the light bulb. So one last thing, then, is important. So we can tip the magnetic field, but we have to be able to measure it, because we have to know where it comes from. And so we can use the same coil setup to, to do that. We can acquire signal. And this is an example from it, so the same head coil. Uh, but this time, because we've tipped the signal, 
it's starting to interact with these coils. It's starting to, the, the magnet is interacting with the coils to produce a small current. So again, we're going in the reverse direction, the magnetic field back to current. And that's picked up by a very sensitive voltmeter. So here's the exciting bit, the imaging bit. And you may wonder, why is it not called nuclear magnetic resonance imaging? And the main reason is because the word nuclear has associations with radioactivity, and so it was quickly lost in order to call it magnetic resonance imaging, because that sounded much safer. And it was these two gentlemen who really led to the seminal work in generating these images, Paul Lotterbur and Peter Mansfield, who won the 2003 Nobel Prize. And apparently, Paul Lotterbur, who produced that image that I showed you at the start of the two tubes of water, had the idea while eating a hamburger. Um, and I don't know if any of you have had a hamburger for lunch, but uh, if all of us won a Nobel Prize after eating a hamburger, there'd be an awful lot of them around. And he came up with the idea that there may, we may be able to divide up or slice up the body. And, and this was his idea. So if we place a patient into the magnetic field, and you can see that shown left to right there, south to north, and we have got the protons in different positions. So there's some protons in the pelvis, some protons in the thorax, some in the brain. If the magnetic field is homogeneous, then they all resonate at the same frequency. So you can't discriminate where they've come from. You can't say one is from the pelvis and one is from the brain. But if we were to change that grade ever so slightly so that the magnetic field was quite different here compared to here, and we can do this with additional coils that sit inside the one that I talked about previously, then we would have variation in the rate at which these, or the frequency of these um, protons. So there'd be a great difference between this one and the, the one on the extreme right. Now, I think that's a difficult concept to grasp. So another way of thinking about it is to think of sounds. So on the left-hand side, we have a low-frequency node. We have an intermediate-frequency node and a high-frequency node. Now, what we do is we can combine these all together cumulatively to produce a single sound, um, or in the case of the MRI signal, signal. And we then have to try and deconvolute that to determine where it's come from in the patient. And so by changing those gradients many hundreds of times, we acquire an image that looks like this of the human body. And it's quite clear what that is, isn't it? Does anyone want to guess what that is? Well, it was a little bit unfair. Sorry, did someone say something? I didn't hear, so I presume it was wrong. Sorry about that. And I, it was a bit unfair of me, because actually, in order to solve this, you need a very simple equation. So now what is it? So it may look complicated, but actually, um, this is a Fourier transform. And doing the reverse Fourier transform allows it to show that image I showed you previously is actually a picture of the brain. And we can produce slices of the brain, just like sliced bread. So we can carve up the body, producing pictures as we go through. And here is an example of something with multiple slices. So we're going up and down through an object. Does anyone guess what that object is? Very good. This is, in fact, a chocolate bar, which shall remain nameless. Other chocolate bars are available also. So 
I talked about this at the start. This is, these are these very fine resolution images through the brain. In the same way that we've chopped, we've chopped up the chocolate bar, we can see different structures within the brain. So now that we understand how MRI works, let's think about how we can use it. So first of all, some very uh, but important clinical applications. Musculoskeletal imaging. So this is a knee joint. Um, and I'm sure many of you have had knee pain in your lifetime. This is the bone above the knee. It's called the femur. Below the knee, it's called the tibia. Between the knee, there are structures called menisci. There are little discs help stabilize the joint. If you do a lot of sports or have trauma, these can get damaged. And that can often present as, as knee pain. And here we have a line of white in the center of that. That should be a triangle of black. And that's because it's torn. So this is a non-invasive way of being able to tell the patient that you've damaged your meniscus. This is the brain. Um, and this unfortunate patient has multiple areas which are abnormal within it. These are here and here and here. Um, this patient, unfortunately, has multiple sclerosis. And in fact, in the very early days of MR, the fact that we could see these lesions, and they weren't visible with other techniques at the time, uh, was really revolutionary. It was one of the reasons why MRI took off. And, and still, many small lesions are only visible using MR. We can look at the heart. So this is a beating human heart, um, seen from the side. This is the left ventricle, so that's the, the main chamber that pumps out the body. You can see it's got a very thick wall to it, and it contracts. It forces blood out through the aorta, which comes up and then down, supplying the brain and then the rest of the body. Uh, this is the right ventricle. It's much thinner, as you can see, and that's thinner because it's pumping blood just to the lungs. And therefore, the pressure and the distance are lower. And we can also see the liver. And dynamically, we can study the blood vessels. So this patient had an injection of something that we call a contrast agent. So it highlights the vessels. And very rapidly over time, we're able to display what happens as the blood passes from one side to the other side of the heart. So initially in the lungs, and then it goes back to the heart, and then up through the aorta and down again. So I'll show that one more time. So you get initially into the lungs, and then to the left side of the heart, aorta, and down. And we can also show movement. Um, and this is quite a simple example. It's not something we would do routinely in clinical practice, but we can watch water being swallowed down the esophagus or the gullet. You can see the bolus of water here and slowly working its way down. And this is applications in the bowel. If a patient has a problem with movement of the small bowel, uh, we can monitor it using these sort of techniques. However, what I would like to spend the last 15 minutes or so talking about is cancer imaging, because that's my major area of interest, and how we can use MRI to, to study cancer in new ways, how we can help patients with cancer and how we can make sure that they have the right treatment, how we can pick it up earlier, for example. And I'm going to talk about five very simple things that we can use um, to image cancer. And you might be surprised by these. We're going back to fat, again, and water. So you've seen those two before. The third one is salt. The fourth one is baking soda, believe it or not, and then sugar. 
So I showed you images of fat throughout the body. Um, to give you a specific clinical problem, um, patients with cancer often have disease which spreads to a little gland above both kidneys called the adrenal gland. And they commonly have, have nodules there, which might be benign, might not be cancer, or maybe metastatic disease, i.e. maybe cancerous. And often it's a great problem to differentiate between those two. Now, we know that the ones that contain large amounts of fat usually are benign, always, but usually, um, whereas those that, that don't contain fat may be cancerous, so we may have to treat in different ways. So this patient who's got known cancer presents with this. Is that tumor or not? Well, by probing the, the water and the fat within this lesion, we're able to say that this is largely a fatty lesion, and therefore we can turn around to the patient and say, this is likely to be benign, don't worry about it. So something as simple as looking at fat has got very important implications for our patients. What about water? Well, I've got a schematic here of what its normal tissue is on the left and cancerous tissue on the right. And in the normal tissue, we have very few cells, lots of space between it. In the, the cancer, we've got densely packed cells because the tumor is growing very avidly. The cells are being pushed against each other. They're competing for space. Um, so it's a little exaggerated, but I think it gives, gives you a feel for what the difference between the two are. Now, we can measure the movement of water in tissue using MRI. We call it diffusion, or it's based around Brownian motion. And in this example, in the normal tissue, that molecule of water has got loads of space. That molecule of water, incidentally, is not drawn to scale. It's going to be much, much smaller than that. And it's got lots of space to, to, to roam around. On the right-hand side, however, the molecule of water is restricted. It bumps up against cells. So how can we use that? Well, this is an example in prostate cancer. Uh, the prostate is a gland that um, sits below the bladder in men um, and frequently gets involved in tumor. So this is an image taken through the pelvis. Um, these are the, the femora on either side. This is the pelvic bone. Here we have the prostate. Um, and this is part of the rectum, which sits just behind the, the prostate. So we can tell by looking at those images that there's definitely tumor there. But the image on the right helps us by showing us that it's got restricted water movement. So the bright areas, the white areas, are where we know that the water hasn't got free movement. It's bouncing up and down against cells. Moreover, we also see an area here which corresponds to a lymph node, which is containing tumor as well. So this is a, quite a, an obvious example, but in more simple examples, it can prove to be a very powerful tool to differentiating um, small amounts of tumor or not. We can also look in the brain. Um, and these are examples of normal human brain, where we can look at different types of diffusion. So either looking at the structure of the brain or looking at the, the fiber tracts. So that helps us in order to stratify patients who have got tumors, help us to differentiate between aggressive and more aggressive ones. When the surgeon goes in, knowing where the fibers are in relation to this helps him to plan his surgery. So it's got huge implications for the way that we're able to, to, to manage these patients. And then in terms of looking at drug response or treatment response, this is a patient with a colon cancer. Um, this is before treatment. We see tumor marked with the arrow. After treatment, there's tumor. But it's, quite, it's a little bit smaller. But it hasn't disappeared. So how much tumor is there? That's the question. Using the diffusion that I showed you before, we can start to disentangle that. So that white area shows that there was lots of tumor beforehand. 
Now we know that there are just a few tumor cells left. So although the size has only got slightly smaller, the fact that our water measurements have got significantly smaller is reassuring. And we can use that to guide our treatments, guide our biopsies, guide our surgery. Um, and this is a three-dimensional representation. As you can imagine, surgeons are looking at three-dimensional space. They don't look at just simple slices through the body. So it's important for them to visualize this as they're going in. Um, the red-brown area is the bladder. And the blue area is the prostate. And these are called seminal vesicles here. This is the rectum and the tumor shown in yellow. So it very clearly delineates to the surgeon where the tumor is. OK, I'm going to move on to something different now. So mostly what I've talked about were protons, but other things we can detect with MRI and NMR. And one of those is sodium. And we have an awful lot of sodium within us, as you can imagine. What's interesting about sodium is that there's about 10 times higher concentration outside the cell than inside the cell. And so we can use that to measure cellularity. We can also look to measure the integrity of the membrane, whether or not it's, it's malfunctioning or not, which happens very early in disease. So we can use it as a way of studying early changes in disease processes. This is an image of um, a volunteer and looking at the sodium distribution now within, within the brain. And the two things which look like horns on either side are actually tubes full of different concentrations of salt. Um, that help us to plan our experiment. But you can see there's lots of sodium in the eyeballs. There's also sodium in the veins that surround the brain uh, and in, within the brain in some of the, the fluid collections. Now, this is a patient who has a brain tumor, again. And by looking at the sodium, we're trying to understand how aggressive the tumors are, you know, whether they're suitable for surgery, and whether it affects what the surgeon does. So looking at things other than the water and the fat distribution may have powerful consequences for the way that we manage diseases. But this remains within the research arena currently. What about looking inside cells? Because again, sodium chloride or salt and water are largely outside the cell, a small amount of both inside the cell. But can we specifically look at things that only reside within the, in the cell? Well, one thing that we might be interested in is imaging sugar or glucose. Um, it's obviously taken up very avidly by all our cells. I'm sure many of you are postprandial, so your sugar levels are probably quite high at the minute. The sugar is taken up within the cell, and it's converted into something called pyruvate. And I, I won't talk about a lot of biochemistry today, but it's very important that, that we talk about pyruvate, because it will come up later again. So one molecule of glucose, two molecules of pyruvate. And then it has a decision. It either goes inside the mitochondria here, into the Krebs cycle, producing carbon dioxide that requires oxygen, or else it goes off here outside of the mitochondria, um, but within the cell still, to produce lactate. Now, all of us will be familiar with lactate. Lactate forms in the absence of oxygen. So if we, if we run for a long distance, um, or if we sprint more than, than our oxygen capacity can deal with, we get severe pains in our muscles. And that's the lactate, or the lactic acid, building up. Um, and this happens inside normal cells. But interestingly, it also happens within tumor cells to a very large degree. And it was this man, Otto Warburg, who discovered that in the 1930s. So his work showed that even in the presence of oxygen, so in the presence where the cancer cell can produce energy very efficiently through the mitochondria, it produced large amounts of this, this lactic acid. And he at the time thought the reason for this 
is because these mitochondria are broken in cancer cells. They're not working properly. He went on to win a Nobel Prize, but um, he was largely wrong, believe it or not. You can still win Nobel Prizes and be wrong. So there are other reasons why the cell produces large amounts of lactate. It's largely to do with growing, actually. However, about 15 years ago or so, we discovered that there are exceptions that, in fact, he is right, that there are specific mutations in the mitochondria that will produce cancer. Now, this is a rare example of that. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail, but the reason that I show it is that it demonstrates something very interesting with MRI. It allows us to pick up very specifically the molecule that accumulates in this mitochondrial defect. It happens to be called succinate. And it builds up inside the cells, and it leads to cancer formation. But we can detect it with MRI. And this is one of the great strengths of MR, that in essence, the, the resonant frequency is a bit like a fingerprint, so we can see fat and water and some of these other molecules. So you might turn around to me and say, well, if MRI is so amazing at picking up all these molecules, why don't we use it more widely? And the problem is that MRI has a big flaw. And that flaw is that it's very insensitive. So I'm going to go back now to what I talked about before. If you remember, we said that the magnets either align in one or other direction when they're put into the magnetic field, I hope. What I didn't quite say to you is that, is that the difference between the two energy states is actually very, very small. So the difference between them, if we took a million of these protons, is somewhere in the region of one to five. So those are the five or so that we use to acquire the image, but we're discarding the information from 999,995. So it's a very, very inefficient process. And that's fine if you're looking at water, because we're 60% water or fat. But it's not so good if you want to look at some of these other molecules. So is there a solution to it? Well, yes, there is. So we can force nuclei into one or other energy states. And schematically, it's shown like this. We use a device called this, which is a clinical hyperpolarizer to, to do that. And this is some of the, the research I'd like to share with you. This has got a, a very um, large magnetic field. It's five Tesla, so it's even higher than the one we image with. It's got a modified core so that it goes down to this temperature, one degree off absolute zero, so even colder than what I talked about around the main magnet, so minus 272 degrees centigrade. And of course, within those very extreme physical conditions, this process happens where we increase signal. Um, but it's one, one Kelvin. Now, who would want something one Kelvin injected into them? I can imagine none of us would like that. So we have to warm it up. And we warm it up very rapidly. We add some pressurized fluid, which is heated. And out comes a fluid, which is approximately body temperature. And it has an increase in signal to noise, which is 10,000 to 100,000 fold increased. Now, just to put that into context for you, it's like getting this little fella to run as fast as this man. And what do we do with that? Well, I talked to you about pyruvate. It is pyruvate is the molecule that we put inside the clinical polarizer. We get the increased signal, so it's this, this sugar-like molecule in essence. And then we inject it into our patients. And it passes, first of all, towards the heart, then towards the lungs, then around the body to the brain, and ultimately to, to tumors, as you can see here. And I'd like to share with you some of our, our early work here, which is very exciting. So this is a standard MRI of the brain. This is this, this pyruvate, this sugar-like molecule that we've injected. It's largely within the vessels. 
The really exciting thing is that we're able to see in real time the formation of lactate, this molecule that I talked about. Even in the normal human brain, we're producing lactate, producing bicarbonate, producing baking soda in the brain as we inject this. That's produced from the carbon dioxide. So we're looking at the cells breathing out carbon dioxide in real time. And of course, we're really interested in how we can do this in cancer. So this patient, again, has a brain tumor, injected the pyruvate. We see its distribution within that tumor. And we also see the lactate that forms from it. We can do this in a number of breast types, a number of um, breast tumor types. Uh, and we can see different lactate labeling in those um, different breast cancers. And shown here, pyruvate on the right, lactate on the left, and then the kidney. And this is a very beautiful example of a very large kidney tumor here. This is the normal kidney. Um, and here we have a vessel. When we inject the pyruvate, this is what we see. Most of it is in the vessel, some in the tumor. And then we get a beautiful image of the lactate that forms in real time um, within seconds. And there are areas of the tumor which contain very little pyruvate and lactate. And we know they're poorly perfused. Um, and then we have areas which are very high lactate. So we're trying to understand that. And the way we do it is through correlation with histology at surgery. Um, when the patient has their image before their operation, we use this to create a 3D mold, shown here. And this is a slicing device. The tumor comes out at surgery. It's got dye on it so that we can identify the edges. It then gets sliced. And we correlate all of this histology um, and tissue with what we see in the imaging to try and understand it, to try and improve patient care in the future. So I've just got a few more slides to go, um, and then we'll take some questions. But these are the key things that we're, 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 we're trying to do. We're trying to detect tumors earlier with imaging. So by that, I mean before we can identify them macroscopically, ideally, so we can look at small molecular changes. We want to use some of this dynamic imaging and some molecular imaging to guide the biopsy so that we put the needle into the right place so we get the right bit of tissue to make a diagnosis, um, so that we can direct the treatment to the tumor. It might be radiotherapy, for example. If and when tumors recur, can we identify them before they become very large, identify them early on? And can we determine the correct treatment? And this is the key paradigm for us. The patients have a, an image, have a, a treatment. They have another image. Is there a change? If it gets smaller, continue the treatment. It seems to be effective. If it's larger, move on to a different therapy. And ultimately, over time, as we add in new layers of, um, of treatment, looking in functional molecular processes, we hope that we'll be able to identify these changes earlier, and more specifically. Um, and so the patients can move on to therapy and correct therapy and more rapidly. So I hope I've shown you today that we've made great inroads in MRI. This was the first image in 1973. This is what we can now do. I hope also in the future that we will have other new imaging tests that we'll be able to apply in order to better stratify our patients, improve patient care, and decrease mortality. So thank you very much for listening. Um, thank you to the many people involved in the work that we do. As you can see, it's a very collaborative process. Um, I'd particularly like to thank Martin Graves and Josh Kagi, who have been integral in producing many of these slides that you've seen with the beautiful animations. Uh, they're both physicists and very talented people. Um, thanks to all our funders. 
um, and some of them are shown up here, but particularly Cancer Research UK have supported a lot of this work. And of course, yeah, thank you to you all for listening. Thank you. So the time for some questions, if you'd like. Um, I think there's going to be a roving microphone. Is that right? Over there. There's a question over here. Okay. Um, thank you very much for a very informative talk. It's very exciting to listen to. Um, I should declare an interest. I'm a GP. Um, and uh, I've found that patients very... Uh, often have very little difficulty believing in the wonders that can be achieved. Um, what they often find harder to believe is that there are limitations to what, what we can image, and even sometimes dangers inherent in imaging. Um, I wondered if you could comment on that, partly to save me the okay. time, but <laughs> okay. no, well, so, I'm, I'm so, so ionizing radiation carries small risks. Um, I mean, th those risks have been extrapolated from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, from mantle radiation. So <clears throat> we don't fully understand the implications of medical radiation, but we do have some figures, and we, we give people figures. So it does carry some risk. Obviously, MR doesn't have ionizing radiation, so it's not like CT or X-ray. Um, the risks probably more relate to the, the metal that I talked about and patients who are... But we can usually exclude those going into, into the scanner. Um, there are small risks when we inject something into a patient, but many of the contrast agents that we've been using, we've been doing for many decades, and the risks, again, are, are, are pretty minimal, if not minuscule. So, so those, those are, are real risks. I guess there's also a risk of over- or under-diagnosing things, which are, are separate risks. Um, I showed you examples where we picked up lesions. Often those lesions are picked up because one imaging test has been done, detects something, and then further imaging tests have to be implemented in order to, to, to account for what they are. And even biopsies, and biopsies carry significant risks to, to the patients. So it's trying to understand what the best plan would be for any individual patient. I think going forward, we will have personalized medicine. Um, in the NHS, we're very much about um, the best for everybody. So risks are balanced against costs. Um, I think that's unlike other healthcare systems throughout the world, so I think we do a very good job at it, actually, um, to, to, to a large extent. Um, but you're right that there are limitations to what we can do. As yet, picking up very early tumours is challenging, um, and so those are the sort of things that we really have to change over time. I guess costs is another thing. Um, these tests are expensive, um, and certainly new tests carry a fairly hefty bill with them. However, one of our arguments has always been that the drugs that we're now using in conjunction with these are many orders of magnitude more expensive. So, for example, many of the very expensive immune drugs that we give patients with metastatic disease um, are costing 60, 80,000 pounds a year. Um, having an imaging test, which may cost one or 2,000 to say yes or no, you shouldn't be on this, could actually be very cost effective. But I think the NHS does a very good job of trying to balance those very complicated issues. I understand we've had several generations of MRI machines. Can you see future development in your equipment? So, I mean, some of the things I'm showing you are based around equipment, so the clinical hyperpolarizer would be an example of that. Um, we can go to higher Tesla, so I talked about three Tesla. 
in Cambridge, we have a seven Tesla machine. And we can see in amazing detail the layers and structures within the brain with that. Um, would that become a clinical tool? I don't know yet. I think we don't have evidence to show that that's something that would be clinically useful. But perhaps in the future, perhaps in very select cases, it, it may have an application. But I think that's some way down the line. Um, most of the adaptations have been hardware up to a point, but also the software um, developments in parallel to that. And I think the software developments are usually more rapid than the hardware. The, going from three Tesla to seven Tesla will take us some time. But I think there will be increments in software more soon, sooner than that. Thank you. I'm going to declare an interest as well. I'm a pathologist. <laughs> Are you going to put me out of business? <laughs> um, well, I think m m I don't see challenges for any of these. I think it's about working together, that actually integrative medicine is really key. So we work very closely with our pathologists, um, imaging teams, and actually liquid biopsy as well is the third thing. So people are increasingly having blood tests to, to diagnose problems. So for example, we can pick up at very high sensitivity the abnormal DNA that's produced by tumors in blood. And so it's finding that link between blood samples, pathology, and imaging, I think is absolutely key. So I think it's not about putting people out of business, it's about how we'd work together best. And in the future, much of what I do may be replaced by, to some degree by computers, artificial intelligence, machine learning. You know, whether that happens in 10 years or 50 years, I don't know the answer to that. But I think we shouldn't see these things as competition. We should see them as, as, as improving healthcare and finding new ways of linking them all together. That's how I would see it. Yeah, what, what do you see the role oh, of augmented... Oh, Who's speaking, sorry? I'm over here. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, the role of augmented reality in uh, surgical procedures. Uh, and by that you mean sort of computer-aided surgery, is that it? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, so to some extent we, we have computer assistance already in surgery to, to, a, to a limited extent. For example, we provide images to our surgeons that they then correlate with what they're looking at and what they're biopsying, and that's that image that I showed that was rotating with the prostate cancer helps the surgeons. Um, I think you may be talking about the next leap where actual... Um, we have robotics going into surgery and maybe even doing the surgery with the surgery themselves. I think that's even further away than having a computer reading the imaging for us with machine learning. It may happen, but the, the more interaction we have with the patient, I think it's less likely that we'll have computers involved, at least in the short term. I think it's going to be some decades before that, that happens to its full extent. But let's look to the future. Sorry, there's a question there. Um, how common do you think it will be to be delivering cancer treatments in real time in the next couple of years um, with the MRI, imaging and radiotherapy? Um, so can I just check what you mean by real time? So, so you're, you're imaging the cancer tumour and you're delivering the, the cancer treatment at the same time. So I think to some extent that's going to happen very rapidly. So for a lot of the, the imaging that I showed you with the water, we call it the diffusion-weighted imaging, that's already beginning to take a role where a patient will have diffusion measurements and it'll be combined with MRI and radiotherapy. So I think that's going to happen very rapidly. Perhaps some of the things I've showed you towards the end are a lot more experimental and they're going to take a few more years before they'd ever be in clinical practice. But some of the things I talked about more in the early part of the talk, I think are already happening to some extent. And I think it's, it is key that we guide therapy using imaging, absolutely key. 
Uh, at the beginning, you mentioned that part of the interest in the MRI was due to multiple sclerosis being seen That's clearly right. in the imaging. Has the development of this science uh, influenced the treatment of MS or any further knowledge of MS? Well, in, in that we can diagnose it earlier, um, we can measure treatment response earlier. CAMPATH has made a very, very big influence in the way we practice MS. While MRI hasn't necessarily created CAMPATH, um, it does assist in the, in the diagnosis and the monitoring of it. So I think I showed you that slide at the end where we had an image and then a treatment and then another image. I mean, that's absolutely key to the way that we want to practice medicine in the future. And we want to have an image which links very closely with the type of drug. So if we have a very specific molecule or functional process that's based upon the drug's action, we're going to have a very rapid readout. Up until recently, we we're looking at size changes. And it takes weeks, months, even longer for a tumor to grow. If we're relying on the size change, then and the tumor may or may not be responding within days, then we're missing a, a huge opportunity of treating at an earlier time point. So I think to answer your question, it has made a difference, but it hasn't, hasn't invented these new drugs, but it's, it's given a tool to allow them to be monitored. Just a very simplistic question, really. Um, will it be possible with dental implants to actually have an MRI scan? Um, it does depend on the implant. So, so we have lists of particular things that we can and cannot image. So there, there, are, there, there are books online that you can look up and assess whether it's safe or not. Um, very old implants often can, can, be, can be troublesome, unfortunately. I think we've got, is that the last question? Or one more? Hi, I'm, I'm a radiographer, and um, often patients are very um, apprehensive to have MRI scans because of the long time, and obviously um, if they're claustrophobic. Do you think that there'll be MRI machines that'll be able to do scans quicker and without the claustrophobic um, shape of the machine? So, so as, I'm, as I'm sure you know, we can do some imaging very rapidly. Uh, we do have open magnets for people who are really claustrophobic. Um, there are not many in the UK. There are more in some other countries. So there are possibilities of doing all of these things. We can sedate patients, but um, that's not ideal because we, we don't like to give people drugs unless it's absolutely necessary. So I think there are options there. And certainly, we'll get faster over time. Uh, and maybe open magnets will become more widely available, so it's less claustrophobic. We, a couple of questions here. I think we have five more minutes, so maybe three more questions. You mentioned the cost of well, treatment being £1,000. How do you bring that cost down so that you can see more patients, help more people? So I mean, cost is often based around people. If you can take people out of the equation, it become cheaper. So if you can send a blood sample off to a laboratory and remove a, a, the person element to it, it's when you can scale things. With a lot of imaging, that's hard to do because it involves a radiographer or a radiologist and it involves time on a scanner. So if that's an hour on the scanner, um, that's more cumbersome than a simple blood test. So I think that those are some of the challenges that we face. We all want the cost to come down. Um, but equally well, imaging is very reliant on people. It's quite a hands-on um, technology. So, so that, that's the challenge. Maybe machine learning and artificial intelligence may help the Veritas to some degree. And I think over time, the more that we do things, they will get cheaper. It just depends to what extent. 
But I do go back to my point about drugs. So drugs are still orders of magnitude more expensive. And so even if it costs £1,000 to, to do a specific imaging test, if you're comparing that against a £60,000 drug, then it can be very cost-effective. And, and this is a big thing in the NHS, health economics. Pacemakers are becoming a lot more common. What progress towards making them compatible with your imaging? So we have MRI-compatible pacemakers. We have pacemakers that can be switched off before they go into the magnet, depending on why the pacemaker was, was put in. It's just with the very older pacemakers that they're, they're, they're problematic. So in time, this will become much less of a problem. It's just that there are historic pacemakers out there that, that are still quite problematic. And it does also depend on why you've had the pacemaker put in. So if it's for a very serious condition, um, clearly the, the risks may be greater than if it's for a minor condition. Um, so really, it's a sort of risk-benefit analysis. And why are you having the MRI? I mean, if the MRI is for a relatively minor condition, you may not want to take a risk as compared to if it's a very serious condition. So that, this is the, the role that we have in the NHS, balancing up the benefits for the patient and potential risks. And um, we always try and think of what, what would be in the best interest of the patient. Do we have one final question, maybe? Um, so I think my question breaks into three parts. Uh, three questions. Sorry, sorry to take, take too much. They're quite quick, though. So, uh, firstly, what is the kind of bottleneck on getting these MRI scans? Is it more the machines that are available, or the people to actually read the images? And then the second point, uh, if you know, to alleviate these bottlenecks, if someone was to set up a company, buy these MRI machines, and lease them back to say the NHS what would be the kind of payback? I know going back to the cost question, what's the cost of buying one of these versus what's the kind of cost you'd charge mm -hmm. for actually doing one of these scans? Uh, and I guess the third point is more of a technology risk. If you were to go spend a, a lot of money on buying one of these machines, what's the risk that this technology becomes redundant, something comes around and replaces that technology? Are you thinking of buying one then? You know, yeah, I was, I was okay. thinking if I was a business option. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it depends on where you live. Certain parts of the country, struggle to recruit radiographers um, because of the cost of living. So maybe a radiographer based in, in certainly big cities, for example, that can be problematic. Um, in some places, it is down to hardware, and there's a limitation. So I, I think it's not a simple answer to that question. But we work closely with industry. So for example, when we have periods when we have no capacity left in the NHS, we will um, buy an MRI time from, from companies, and, and we'll lease out a, a van um, when, when there's the need to, to do that. So we do work with industry. Um, and it's finding the balance between the NHS, which is obviously a government-led organization versus industry, which is trying to make profit, but is also de delivering a service. Um, will this become redundant? Um, I think standard MRIs, probably not in the immediate future. At least I'm hoping so. Otherwise, I'll have to retrain or something. Um, but I think that, that, that maybe looking 10 or 15 years forward, the, the technology will change. Most of these bits of equipment have only a 7 to 10 year lifespan anyway before they get renewed. So within the lifespan of what, of what they currently are, it's probably OK. I hope that answers your three questions. I mean, that, that's a very complicated question. I'm not sure I could give you a very simple answer to that. It depends how much you use it, for example. So if you, if you buy one and you own it, you then have to provide your own staff. How often are you going to use it? If you use a, a company, they, they take all the risk element. Um, but equally well, there's, there's an overhead in order to balance that risk. So 
I think it really does depend on the nature of the hospital, the nature of the work that you're doing, um, how complicated it is, whether you've got your own supply of radiographers. Um, I'm afraid I can't give that a simple answer. I'm really sorry. Anyway, thank you for, for listening. Thank you very much. <laughs>